I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Marcus Lowe is a novelist, journalist, and healthcare activist who worked for the advocacy group The Treatment Action Campaign. His debut novel, Asylum, is like an uncooked onion. It's raw, has layers upon layers, and will make you cry. In terms of genre, Asylum is dystopian and apocalyptic, with a mix of health horror. It tells a very human story about James Barry, who has a highly infectious lung disease and is being held in quarantine in the Karoo. It's set in 2019. Asylum is a thought-provoking and superbly written book that will do to you what a fictional South African government did to James Barry, hold you captive. Marcus, to give Amabuka Buka listeners a taste of asylum, can you please read an extract? So, yeah, I'm going to read two short extracts. Um, just a bit of context. The one is a, is a dream that he has. He has his... He's um, shut up in this asylum hospital place in the Karoo, and the, there's this kind of harsh, hot reality around him, and then he has these dreams where it's always snowing. I was standing on the platform at a railway station, Salt River maybe, although it looked nothing like the Salt River station from which I had taken so many trains in my previous life. For one, it was snowing, the world white, white, blinding. I watched the snowflakes slowly drifting down onto the tracks and felt a surge of emotion as they settled on the cold iron rails, white on black. Was the long days of Karoo's sun and heat over? Had I been granted this final grace? My sins been pardoned? Could it be that I'd be going home? I could hear the approaching rumble of a train. I looked around. There were people on the platform, real people, not inmates, people in thick coats and woolen hats, people whose faces I could not see. To my side was the heavy gray suitcase I had been lugging about all day. Its handle had torn off and hung limply. I wondered how I would manage to carry it. The train screeched into the station. The doors slid open with a loud swishing sound. I reached down for my suitcase, but another man was already there. No, it's okay, he said. I have to take it now. And so that's the first extract. That's, as I said, from one of the dreams. And just to contrast that, I'll read a bit where he's sitting in this ward and he's looking out at the Karoo. Um, so the conceit of the book is that he wrote, writes these notebooks while he's in captivity um, in this place. And after the events of the novel unfold, these notebooks are found, and this is, this is what we're reading. So here's a, a bit where he's, he's just kind of observing the world outside. Outside my ward window, the world has died. The dead dirt of the Karoo radiates sunlight. The shrill whine of beetles rises from the hard-baked ground. Insects are incessant. They draw out the long moment before the final eruption that is always delayed for just another instant. Hardly anything grows in the wasteland out there. The torn and scrawny shrubs 
have the look of litter, litter strapped down to a fuck-hard earth. The wind, even the slightest breeze, can stay away for days. Then, for long, hot afternoons, it snatches and tugs at the shrubs. I find myself staring out at these days for hours, hypnotized, seeing, despite my dulled and failing mind, into the heart of some long-dead god of human suffering. I like to imagine that the wasteland beyond the fence stretches into eternity, that this dilapidated old colonial hospital is the only remaining island of life in all the world, that out there there are no towns, no cities, no schools or office sparks or shopping malls, no businessmen or politicians, no mothers or girls bursting with youth, just one endless silence. Thanks, Marcus. Asylum is fiction, but the idea came from a very real attempt to quarantine people with drug-resistant TB in 2007. Can you remind people about that crisis and how it played itself out? Yeah, so, I mean, at the time, we didn't really know how to deal with drug-resistant tuberculosis. There was a lot of paranoia. The treatments we had then were even worse than the ones we have now that aren't great either. Um, and people were incarcerated for long periods of time. You know, in one much publicized case in the Eastern Cape at um, Jose Pearson Hospital, um, patients escaped and there was a search for them. And uh, it's weird to me how people seem to have forgotten this history. It's yeah. quite recent. But there was a some very good writing about it. One of the most interesting pieces was actually a New York Times article that spoke, you know, they spoke to a lot of the people living in, in this place. So it's, you know, in the book, it seems a bit apocalyptic and yeah. um, like in the tradition of plague novels, I guess. But, you know, these are pretty real things and people have lived through similar things in this country quite recently. Yeah, but it got me thinking about people living with illnesses and how society shuns them, wants to hide them away, isolate them. We've got a long way to go, haven't we? Yeah, and the one thing I've learned with my work at the TAC is that if you have money, you're treated in one way. If you're poor and you're dependent on, on the public health care system, if you're dependent on the state, then often you have fewer options. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the institutions of the state can be, you know, very unforgiving and merci merciless and really diminish one's dignity in many ways. And then I guess the other thing to add to that is, as, as we've seen with HIV, definitely, and to some extent with TB, there's a lot of stigma in society. Yeah. And over time, people internalize that stigma and, you know, healthcare workers are not immune to it. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it can be very difficult to deal with. I read Asylum while I was in the throes of flu, so my soundtrack was a hacking cough, which was appropriate given that James Barry has a pulmonary nudolosis, a lethal illness. How much health research did you do for Asylum? So, I mean, uh, <laughs> pulmonary nodulosis is a made-up disease, yeah. just so everyone knows. But it's very much based on the kind of TB we get these days, um, which is, you know, if you have the most hard to treat forms. It's 
you know, the five-year mortality in South Africa is 73% with current treatments. So 73% of people who get this disease die in five years, even with the current treatments. Um, so it's based on that. And, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but in my work at the TSC, I've, I've had to deal with the science of this kind of disease quite a bit. Um, you know, so I hope it's, it's roughly plausible to people. Yeah. So how did the, this, the book come about? What was the catalyst? Well, in, in practical terms, it, it's, you know, it started when I did the MA in creative writing at UCT, you know, which created the space for me and time to spend hours, you know, a few hours a day on writing, um, which otherwise I don't think I would have done. But the, I guess the creative impulse is partly out of this history um, of TB in South Africa, but then very much inspired, I think, by some of the books I've read over the years um, dealing with similar issues. And then, you know, for me, uh, quite early on, I had this, I guess, vision of a hospital in the Karoo and this kind of harsh landscape, but then contrasted with the streams that Barry, the protagonist, keeps having, where it's always snowing and people speak Polish and yeah. It's it's a bit strange. And the, the contrast of that cold, snowy strangeness with the kind of harsh realities of his life, that contrast was, um, I guess, the kind of core creatively that kept me going and it gave me a way to explore what's happening psychologically with, with this guy. So the narrative has interesting literary devices, marginalia, fragments, notebook, poems, and an academic-style report. This worked really well from a reader's perspective, allowing us to see the story from a number of perspectives. But for the writer, it seemed like a complicated juggling act to hold it all together. How did you manage? Well, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I think doing this kind of thing is, is difficult. And um, I was worried that I was breaking a lot of the rules because I think when writing the ideal writing a novel like this, the ideal is to write it as straight as possible um, without any of these things that could sometimes be seen as gimmicks. But, you know, I felt they were necessary for various reasons. The, what, the one kind of key thing is that since the book is these made up of these journals, essentially, we are very much in his mind, in Barry's mind. Yeah. And I was worried that that could become a bit suffocating for people. So, you know, we experimented or I experimented with the idea of having the marginalia, having these academic bits that gives the reader distance um, just to take him out of Barry's mind for a while and just situate it in a, in a larger context. And I experimented and then I liked it and then I kind of fleshed it out. Um, you mentioned the dreams and the reality and the book is real and surreal. And... Um James Barry exists in both these worlds, the dreadful, frustrating and loneliness reality of his incarceration, where he is waiting to die and, I suppose, escape, and his metaphorical escape into dreams. In those dreams, anything is possible. The Polish, the dancing. Are dreams the only way out of our reality? Well, I hope, I hope that's not what people take away from the book. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think at the heart of this book, there's a one of the issues I grapple with is how, how do you respond to kind of things that just can't be changed in life? So something like an incurable disease, and it's difficult. You you can I think there's always this tension: do you hope for a cure, or do you accept the the reality? And 
that is a difficult tension. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think the book offers any solutions to that. But I, I think it's 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 rich um, material for literary exploration. But you know, coming back to the book, I think the dreams provide some relief to him. I think ultimately, and I don't want to give too much away. I think I think there there's, there's there are other forms of redemption in the book that that just you know have to do with. Um, connections with human beings, with other human beings, and um, even yeah. though that doesn't settle the fundamental problem of his illness, I think there's 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 some redemption in that. Yeah, there was a familiar ring to the name James Barry, and I noticed a few Peter Pan and Neverland references. I wondered if this was a nod to James Barry, James Barry. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean. The, the part of how, the, how this evolved is that there's this problem with first novels that people write about themselves. So I was very aware that it did not want to do that. And a key part of that is, for me, was giving the character a name that is not, you know, just completely not me. And Barry felt pretty far away from how I see myself. <laughs> so I started <laughs> with the name Barry, and that just really worked. And then... You know, I called him Barry James, and I, I, I didn't want to overplay the... Is his name Barry James or James Barry? Is it Barry James? <laughs> his, name, his name is Barry, but oh, there, there's a place where... There, you know, there is a place where somebody says... Where he discovers the notes um, that's being kept about his case in the hospital, and it's written as James, James Barry. James Barry, yes. And then, yeah, I mean, there is another reference to Peter Pan as well. Yeah, um, so I, I've, I guess, I've been calling him James Barry because of, in my mind, because of the, yeah. the Peter Pan reference. Well, I, I, one could could very easily overdo it, but I think layering a book with these different bits of meaning that work, because I mean the the whole idea of Peter Pan is a kind of escapism. Yes, um, never uh, growing up and. Yeah, and not facing the the thing that's right in front of you. So there are a number of other things like that in the book that I I didn't want to overdo, but I think having them there creates resonances that just makes the the book richer. Great. There are a couple of uh, questions that I've got, but I, I'm I'm worried that these might um, be spoilers. But why doesn't the doctor wear a mask? <laughs> <laughs> Well, what, what what I can tell you is I've met doctors who, at the height of the drug resistance TB paranoia in South Africa, refused to use masks um, when dealing with patients. So there's kind of real world, uh, okay. real world foundation for that. Um, and it's I guess it's it's a statement on the doctor's part that he's not going to do that. Um, there were a number of things in the book that I, I felt were going to be resolved, but they were left unresolved. And I'm just wondering why why you did that. Well, so on the one hand, I, I didn't want to write a boring book, right? So there is a, there's a kind of a spine and an arc to the book. There's a, much of it revolves around an escape from this facility. So there is that, but I, I mean, I should be very clear, it's not a you know, it's it's a literary book. The aim is not to, you know, I want it to be entertaining, but that's that's not quite why I wrote it. And some issues in the book do get resolved, some don't get resolved. I think, you know, some some mysteries are more more valuable intact. And um, you know, I, I just don't think books have to close all the loops. I mean, I had the option of wrapping it up neatly at the end, um, and if I wanted to, you could do that, but. It's something that I, often in crime novels, for example, I find it very dissatisfying if it wraps up too neatly. 
because it, it feels forced and it doesn't fit with a kind of internal logic of the book. I don't know if that makes sense to It you. makes sense, but we are going to now see if we can find all the answers in the sound effects Rorschach test. <laughs> the sound effects Rorschach test. It sounds like uh, the the start was quite promising. It sounded like something from a, some old cellar in a European city, but then it just turned into a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I imagined it would sound like if Top Billing did a feature on on my book. <laughs> <laughs> that was the soundtrack to me reading the, your book. <laughs> what it reminds me of is I, I grew up with, we had Labradors when I was growing up. And um, a few years ago, I was going through a difficult period. And I had this dream where I was lying on a lawn, kind of in the sunshine, and there was like, Ten Labradors, little baby Labradors, just climbing all over me, and it, it was the most wonderful yeah. escape from from the kind of things I was dealing with at the time. This is just cruel. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of two things. It, it reminds me of the day. I got married, and it reminds me of the day that I was at the high court to get divorced in Cape Town quite a few years ago. And the kind of fascinating contrast between two days like that, where at the beginning, you're, you know, you have all these people around you celebrating, and when it ends, it's kind of just you in this courthouse <laughs> and talking to the judge and, you know one or two friends and whatever, but it's it's this weird asymmetry in, in how these things play out. It's quite funny and probably worth writing about at some point. That to me sounds like the kind of thing people in the USA get locked up for, for um, releasing, as, as happened to Chelsea Manning. And it, it Sorry, I'm being very grim about this, but it it just reminds me about the kind of indifference that much of the world has to to war and violence and and things like that. I exercise my right to <laughs> not to comment. I was in Canada some years ago, and I have family who live there. And we went to a casino that was built on an old, in, on, a, on an Indian reservation. And um, it was just the saddest place I've <laughs> ever seen. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, and they, you know, bus people in, and people spend day, like the whole day there, and the lights never go off. And it's it's this really dreary place in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. Um, quite fascinating, but yeah, pressing as well. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Thank you, Marcus. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Deuce and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. You can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. I'm a Booker Booker. I'm a Booker.